Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, short story, essay, memoir, basically anything you write is really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scenes, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we get to hear from Issa Arsene, and she is going to give us a special sneak peek of her debut novel, Shoot the Moon, which releases in October. Good morning, Issa. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Issa Arsene is a certified bleeding heart. This is actually from her bio, which I love. Certified bleeding heart and audio engineer based in South Texas, where she lives with her spouse, and a comically small dog. She's published several shorts and pieces of experimental interactive media inspired by her own childhood summers in New Mexico. Shoot the Moon is her debut novel. All right, Isa, thank you so much for being with us. Now, can you give us a quick kind of overview of the book before we dive into the first pages? Yes. Uh, Shoot the Moon is a story of one woman's life, Annie Fisk, told through three different hallways of time. You have her adulthood working as a secretary on the Apollo 11 launch with NASA in the 1960s. Uh, you have her college years in San Antonio working as a physics major. And then you have her childhood in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, in which her father is working on the bomb in the 1940s. Excellent. I love books that play with time. Okay, let's hear these pages. All right. 1966, the Manned Spacecraft Center, Dr. Alan Gibbs's empty office, Houston, Texas. I blew a piston of smoke through the open window and took another draw on its heels, my eyes fixed on the waxing moon hanging high above. The sill dug softly into my elbows as I drank in the fresh air. I was lucky the door had been unlocked and luckier still that the random room I'd chosen had a window. Beyond the door I'd shut tight behind me, the office-wide Christmas party carried on with a crush of seasonal noise and bluster I hadn't been doused in since I was a kid. My parents were the only ones of their friends who had gone and had a child amid the heaving groundswell of the 1940s. Having a daughter bouncing around like a free agent didn't deter mother from throwing her Christmas party in excess every year. With the other lab men and their wives on leave from Los Alamos for only a precious handful of days, for one night a year, our house was a tiny nucleus of normalcy, warmed to bursting by laughter, spiced wine, and the popping of paper crackers I had helped make at the kitchen table the week prior. I couldn't remember much from my childhood, but I could remember those parties. I had one vivid memory left of my father. I turned it over in my head as I stared up at the moon, out at the sky, along the endless stars like batter flung against the scooped out bowl of the night. As the only kid at the Christmas parties, I'd gotten good at entertaining myself. After enough stolen sips of amaretto made my lips pucker, tasting nothing like I'd hoped, I sought curiosities beyond the bar cart or record cabinet. I got great at eavesdropping. I remembered standing just outside the kitchen archway while daddy and four friends chipped ice from the freezer into their glasses and talked about a rare vacation one of them had managed to take to a dude ranch farther north. When I peeked around the corner, I saw daddy was smiling. His smiles were rare and precious to me, like the annual appearance of mother's spiced rum cake. He was leaning languidly on a friend's shoulder, all of them dotted with little blue pins on their lapels, as though they'd been marked with bingo blotters. And he pointed at one of the other men. He swayed a little where he stood. If they're going to drop another, 
he had announced. I'd better be far away from him. That's far away from here. That's all I'll say about that. You know what I mean. The others had chuckled and patted his shoulders and cheeks as they continued making their drinks. For the rest of that night, until I got tired and Daddy carried me carefully to my bedroom, the smell of his aftershave strong on his collar, an incessant itch of apprehension had buzzed under my skin. The single moment was as clear to me in Dr. Gibbs's window as it had been when I was seven years old. I leaned forward into the windowsill again, sticking my head out to breathe the light December air of our solitary stretch of Houston. The respite from humidity at this time of year dug me even deeper into those childhood thoughts of parties long past, the shapes and colors of them in the desert like vibrant movement through frosted glass. New Mexico was nothing but a dream from here. The door swung open behind me. A brief shout of the chatter outside underscored by Connie Francis wailing about baby's first Christmas tugged me around and quieted again as whoever came after me pulled the door shut. Occupied, I blurted. The intruder looked far from offended. His tipsy smile beamed and a thick pair of Buddy Holly glasses framed eyes that could have been sharp in the Viridian shimmer, if not for whatever battalion of cocktails swirled in his belly. His tie was loosened at his neck, his sport coat sleeves rucked up messily to his elbows, and he sauntered over to lean on the windowsill beside me as though I'd invited him. He waved an easy hand. This isn't the restroom. His hair was sandy blonde, still smoothly combed and parted despite his dishevelment. From so near, I could smell the faint touch of a woodsy cologne overpowered by sweet vermouth. The man snickered as his face brightened with mischief. He glanced over his shoulder and shot me a conspiratorial look as if we were already friends. Although this is Gibbs's office, might as well be a shithouse. The long taffy pole of his voice was native to these parts of Texas, all honey sticky vowels and back of the tongue pearl. My interloper fixed me a smile just sideways enough to be charming. I'm bothering you, he said plainly, like it was some sort of achievement. I gave a tight shrug. Not really. My cigarette had one last draw in it before I stubbed it out on the sill. I dropped it into the full ashtray to my right. Mine was the only one with a rind of lipstick on its filter. Excellent, okay, thank you so much. So um, did you always begin your novel with these, with this particular scene, with her smoking at this window? No, this was, I think, the second or third scene in the first draft. Um, my editor was the one who suggested we put this as the prologue. And it holds so many little keys to what else is coming. Um, it initially started with the scene that comes directly after this. So in a way, it still does start with that first scene because this is the prologue. Um, and I know that a lot of people have a lot of very strong feelings about prologues versus yes or no. Um, but I think it really works in this case. It, it, it was good to give it a try when she first initially suggested the change and feel like, okay, yes, this does sort of invite the reader in um, and kind of teases them with a lot of what they might expect to see coming. You get some background into her childhood, you get some background into, you know, what, what she's doing at NASA and sort of how she's positioned herself. She's not that social and, and she is sort of a loner and, and you already you get that sense with the prologue and you get to take it with you. So it was, it was nice to feel like you get to start from the right foot with this one. Yeah. And there, I mean, if you listen to all our sessions from the summer, you'll notice we have about three fourths of the books, maybe, maybe two thirds have had prologues. So this whole 
idea that you can't start a novel with a prologue and that agents and editors don't like prologue doesn't seem to actually be happening. Um, oh no, I <laughs> disagree. And I love a prologue. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's like a peek behind the curtain. It's a little, you, you go see a musical or an opera and they always have an overture. So it's very much the overture of the book. Yes. <laughs> and your editor actually asked you to do this. Yes, the a lot of the changes that we made, at least in the early stages of our revisions, when it was a lot more macro, um, a lot of them were structural changes. And it, because the book is told out of time, you get some scenes that happen in the 40s mashed up right next to a scene that happens in the 60s. And um, there's parallels in those scenes with the themes that they carry through them. But um, time wise, they're completely scattered, uh, which is the intent. And And I do think that ultimately, the way that we landed and my editor had like a, a notebook sheet of like this year, this year, this year, kind of tracking where we had them all going. It was, it was fascinating to me. Um, but it finally landed in a place where like we got the jigsaw puzzle working, all of the pieces that needed to talk to each other finally ended up talking to each other. Um, and it was really cool to just find out like there's, there's one scene about halfway through the book that's very impactful and very heavy and we had it in one place and it was kind of working and then we moved it up. And I was really reluctant to do that, but eventually we got it there and suddenly boom, it actually, it finally kicked and it finally started delivering the message that, that I wanted it to. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so descriptions of this book, and I hope I can say this right, because it's kind of a mouthful. Descriptions of this book have called it affectingly achronological. Um, and so I would have thought that that editing process it's both fun to work with an editor like that that can see and kind of deliver something new and, and kind of hold up a, a mirror to what you're already doing. But you probably already had the structure locked in your head because I'm assuming you'd revised it so often before you gave it to her. So you said that this one moment you kind of, when she wanted to move that scene earlier, you resisted it a little bit. I mean, how was it like working with the editor in that dynamic of going back and forth and, and working on such big structural issues? It was daunting to kind of even bite it off and chew it at first. I'd gotten a little taste of it with just my agent before we started on sub. Um, and most of his changes were, I like the way that things are working, I just want more. So it was, it was a process of adding and sort of finding where I could put more of the characters or their intentions or sort of where this plot is even driving itself. Um, so I, I had sort of taken the first leap of, of big macro changes with content, but I hadn't done it yet with structure. Um, and then once my editor brought it to the table, um, she's very keen and very good at pitching big changes and not making them feel like big changes. Like she'll sort of just be like, well, what if we tried da da da? And it, it leaves the door open and it's very easy to say like, yeah, we can try that. And then to just kind of trust that even if it doesn't work, we can try something else. That's something that I learned a lot along the way because this is my first novel. Um, I've never worked on something of this size with a team of this size as well, more than me and a couple other folks. There's more people touching this piece than, than anything that I've worked on writing wise. Um, and it was really nice to kind of get that affirmation of, you know, I can try a big change and it can work and I'll be really excited about it. Or I try a big change and it doesn't quite work, but we discover something along the way that opens up the path that actually does work. Yes, yes. And I think being open to those ideas and being open to making changes and knowing that, I mean, we, this is not, 
it's not a live performance. It's not a painting in which we only have one campus, canvas so we can, you know, screw it up. I mean, we can actually redo things and move things around and, and go right back to the, the original if that is better for us. Um, but yeah, I've open. got like four different versions of like, it's like final one, final two, final, 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 final two. <laughs> I've heard agents talk about that. Like I always get these, they say, I always get these documents that have final on them and, and the agents are like, yeah, this is not the final. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> but being open to that and even if it allows you to better decide what you choose to do in the end. Like I, I remember with my first book, my agent was very resistant to one of the voices. And so I actually tried taking it out and the whole book just, um, the other voice that he liked better is it was highly, highly repressed and there was no air in it. And so it just didn't mm -hmm. quite work. And so then I realized, okay, what I, what I really need to fix is that other voice. So then I just pressed into the other voice and, and made it work. Um, so I think it can open a lot of choices up for you and re-examining why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, for instance, you're using a lot of different time periods, which I personally love. Um, how were there, how would your agent and editor's reactions to that? And why did you choose to do it in these, you say three different time periods? Mm -hmm. um, I have a thing for threes. I was raised Catholic, so it sort of just sticks with me. Um, and I do, I think it is, it's, it's exciting to examine one character from multiple points of view. Um, cause I do think that it, it is a theme in the book and I, I think it's something to carry through life in general is that, you know, you are a very different person as you move through life. You're in the same body, but you're, you're experiencing things that change you on a chemical level. Um, and the, the suggestions I think that, that were made for any sort of shifts or changes always very much honored the fact that I wanted to live in these very specific times. So it was first, it was the kind of the mid forties directly post-war um, in 45, most of it kind of moves beyond 45, but, but her father works on the bomb. They dropped the bomb. Obviously it's all this very secretive furtive work that they're doing. Um, it's a super closed community. And, and my editor was the one who was able to point to that and say, you know, there is loneliness here and this is a very important element of her character. So like, let's dig into this. Why do her parents only have one child? It was the forties. People were having tons of children. It was the baby boom. So why that? And then the years later, kind of towards the end of the fifties, when she goes to college, there's this emerging women's liberation movement and she's wrestling with her sexuality and she is discovering more about herself. And she makes a friend that turns into more of a friend. And it's that kind of really beautiful chaotic moment of young adulthood specifically young womanhood and then you get to her first real career where she's driving towards this ambition that she has she doesn't really know why she feels this pull to work at NASA but she does so she follows it um, and then it's it's that really is the culmination of who has she been as a child who has she been as a young woman um, and then what does that mean for her and the choices that she makes going forward in matters of heart, professionalism, sort of everything that she does. And she makes one discovery that just blows the lid off of everything and sort of takes the wheel of the book and, and U-turns it a little bit in a, in a fun way. So I'm excited for people to kind of see what that means for them as readers as, as they experience her life. Oh, that's amazing. And, and 
and I think you you already I can already tell you handle time extremely well just in this prologue. So we get this moment where she's sitting at the window. And then we do get, we actually very early on go back into a memory of her childhood. I couldn't remember much. I remembered, I remembered. And normally we say, okay, stay in the scene, particularly when you start a novel and don't go into another flashback or backstory because we don't wanna go back and back. We wanna stay at least in the present scene when we begin. But I think you do this, you layer the time extremely well. And plus you're not going into backstory, you're going into an actual other scene and, and the flashback is full of such good writing and sensory details and we're very much there. Um, so it's just kind of interesting how you're layering them on top of each other um, and introducing the whole idea of the book that this is going to be happening in this book, that this book is going to always be going through time like this. Did you ever try to write just from one time period or did you always know I wanted, I needed the disparate time periods? I knew this book was going to be fractured from the beginning. Um, it, it's it's about sort of moving through life, not really understanding why things feel split and, and sort of discovering if there is even a way to kind of braid those things back together. Um, so I did know from the, the get-go, like you look at my first outline and it's like scene one, we're in the 40s, scene two, we're in the 60s, scene three, we're in the 50s. I, I kind of have always had these year headers. Um, and I, those have stuck since the first draft, even with the, it, it, I am a huge film buff. So I love having title cards on things where it's like, here's the year, here's the setting, you know, now you know what your mind's eye has to do. So go nuts with it. Um, and yeah, I, I, I had not, I haven't stopped to consider the fact that I made two cardinal sins with <laughs> starting with a prologue and then immediately going to a flashback. But yeah, it, it's exactly what you said where it is like, this is the amuse-bouche of the whole book. Like you are going to feel very unseated in time at a lot of turns. Um, you know, these characters are sort of going to be these many layered things of, of the experiences that have built them. Um, there are some characters that you know for longer than others, some that are only ever present in the beginning of Annie's life, some that are only ever present towards the later years. Um, but this idea of being this thing that is full of so many experiences um, and then not necessarily remembering or being able to access a chunk of them um, and sort of what that does to one's life is, is, it was really exciting for me to explore that on the page. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and I think, we might be unseated in time, but not confused. I, I, I didn't feel in, at any point confused with the time jumps. Now, again, I particularly like them, but I think you handle them very, very well and you kind of move slowly through them. So I can feel your author's hand holding ours or the narrator's hand holding ours um, as, we, as we go into it. Because we first have, I couldn't remember much from my childhood, but I could remember those parties. I have one vivid memory left of my father and then we go into that, I remembered. So again, we're, we're using language that kind of, it, it's almost like that fade and we can hear, <laughs> hear you saying, just come with me, come with me now. And, <laughs> and, and it's absolutely there. And what I also like, um, I particularly uh, love historical novels, though mostly in the sense because they grant you a con context of history that you're able then to kind of wink at it with the reader and to get something really quite powerful. So here we get, 
we get them at her memory of her parents at the party. And we get this one guy that's kind of drunk. Um, and he says, if they're going to drop another he had announced, I'd better be far away from here. That's all I have to say about it. You know what I mean. And the scary thing is that the reader knows what he means. <laughs> yeah. And, and he doesn't even have to say, if we're going to drop another bomb or, or, or this will happen. So you're actually able to use the reader's knowledge of this event to add um, power to the moment, which in terms of you know, place and time, it seems like you're able to do that throughout the book um, using what reader already knows in many ways to give the story um, its tension and keep us turning the pages. It was really fun to do that. I, I love writing historical fiction because I just love doing research. I am not in school any longer, but it's sort of my way to perpetually keep myself in school is that I get the excuse to keep digging through archives and like have a JSTOR account and all that fun stuff. Um, but I was particularly lucky that I, I had picked a, an organization as thorough as NASA um, to have involved in this because they have open archives of so many things. They have transcriptions of interviews. They have full manuals of their flight systems that you can look at. It, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, specifically to like kind of hinge points in time and, and popular culture as well as, as political and social history, um, it really gives a lot to draw on where, you know, that rule of show don't tell that's kind of like the smorgasbord of it where it's like great i can point to all of these things that have happened that people are aware of um that we use as sort of this dramatic irony of being aware of of historical events after they have happened whereas people are in the middle of them on the page so they can't possibly have their head wrapped around the whole of it um and it, there's a moment later in the book where annie gets an aha moment and it was sort of a it was a little wink nudge to myself where it's like, you know, this is, this is a very feminine book. And, and I really enjoyed being able to sort of play with the dichotomy of masculinity and femininity and sort of how that mixes not only within the main character, but also her love interests and, and sort of how that blooms. But there is a very cheeky moment that is like, it could only have happened in the 60s. Um, and she gets a nice little brain blast with something that's like very specifically maybe two years of fashion history really have a, have a good uh, uh, kick to her system. And, and that was a fun what if that I sort of threw it at my editor and she's like, yeah, try it. And then it ended up working. <laughs> and then, so we don't get the transition into the first chapter here. I think you already talked about working with your editor and lining up the chapters in the scene so that they spoke to each other. So can you mm -hmm. talk more about, because those transitions between time periods are so, so important, particularly at the beginning that you're basically teaching the reader how to read the book, um, mm -hmm. but then keeping the reader with you and feeling like there's a there's a bridge between these things or this this is continuing, even though I'm jumping in time, I'm actually continuing along the same line in some way. So how did you, can you talk more about scenes speaking to each other or uh, chapters speaking to each other and how you lined them up like that? Sure. Um, the first thing that I kind of picked when I was ordering things and, and particularly in the final stages of revisions when we were making sure where it's like this comes after this comes after this. Yep, we're locking it down. 
um, the things that I wanted to make sure were clear were the through thread of the story. So what what is the emotional arc of what we're what we're kind of dealing with here? And that was the thing that had to be strongest through everything. Um, the, the emotional intention had to be there. I couldn't be sort of jerking people back and forth with like, here's a really heavy scene, here's a really light scene. It was, and even if I did set them against each other, there still had to be some sort of common ground between them. Um, and then from there, it was a matter of teaching people, like you said, um, what to expect from the different eras of her life, where her childhood has a very different narrative voice um, her college years have a narrative voice that's a little closer to that of, of her adult, uh, her fully adulthood. Um, but there is still a little bit more doubt and um, sort of internal, not monologuing, but but those chapters are more internal because she hasn't gotten used to sort of dragging herself out yet. And then the kind of the ultimate stage of where she has, where she is, there's a little bit more dialogue. There's a little bit more awareness of um, sort of who she is as a person, what she wants out of herself and the people around her. Um, so it, it is sort of this gradual opening of, you know, her childhood is very closed off. Her young adulthood, she's just starting to sort of figure things out. And then her full adulthood is this is this more open book of, you know, here's where we are. This is, for lack of a better term, it's the present of the story. Um, and everything else has, I've done my best to kind of breadcrumb the fact that everything grows towards those scenes. So the scenes in the 60s are sort of like home plate um, and everything else is very much in orbit around that and, and influences it. But um, I would hope is, is there are things to pick up on too. And I, I have a habit of repeating myself a lot when I'm drafting, I'll have like lines that come up often. Uh, and I found that that was actually an unintended boon with this book because I would be able to be like, oh shoot, I used that line in another scene over there, but maybe it's like a little, kind of like an Easter egg where she, it is about a lot of things repeating themselves and sort of, you know, making new with what you would expect or, or kind of twisting fate around itself or, or avoiding it in some way. Great. And I love thinking about this. Um, we've talked in past episodes about creating again those links between the disparate parts with image or dialogue or um, just kind of repeating, uh, yeah, bits bits of dialogue, bits of scene, bits of language to give us a, 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 a baton or a pivot point to get from one to another. But you're talking about emotion, which mm. I also like. Um, and I think that's something that we haven't talked about. If the emotional jump is too jarring or too displaced, I think um, we're going to be thrown too much and we're just not going to get there. And that's particularly problematic in the early pages of a book. So I really mm -hmm. like thinking about that. You also introduced the image of the moon in this. And this might be why your um, editor wanted you to move this chapter to the front. I think it was. <laughs> How does the image of the moon play out through the whole piece? Uh, the moon becomes uh, at once a plot device and kind of a, a sticking point for Annie to kind of hold close as she moves through life. Um, she has some scenes where she has some conversations with her father at nighttime. They're sitting outside. Uh, she has, you know, the, the existential woes of young adulthood that we all have staring outside of her window at the moon at night just you know where am I going from here uh, and then you have the obvious kind of hard tie of she's working at NASA on the Apollo 11 launch they're going to the moon um, so it's it's very much a 
kind of a building block of this thing that is there always for all of us every night. Um, but for her, it, it ends up representing something that, that holds more power than one might expect, um, has more of a, an impact on life and, and how it proceeds, and um, is at once kind of a sense of, of a destination for discovery of the self and uh, in general for humankind as, as the Apollo mission continues. Um, but also kind of a refrain and a, a something that becomes very important to her in particular um, and, and sort of how space is moving. And did that occur naturally as you were writing the book? Uh, it was less of a figure in the plot in the very early stages. And then as I developed more of, um, you know, I did... I hesitate to call it world building um, because it's not quite world building because this is still a historical book that's not fantasy, uh, but there is a speculative element to it. So the moon did end up solving some of my questions of how am I going to explain this and how do I make this work uh, in reality? <laughs> oh, great. Okay. I'm going to have to let you go so I can get our folks back to their writing desks. Everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. So I have one last question for Ethan. And Isa, I just love your first name because I'm actually working with two characters named Isa right now. So this is very satisfying. Isa, um, talk to me. What advice would you have given your younger self, the younger Isa, our son, um, about your book, about the first pages? I would tell her to just give it a go. And I think that when I was younger, it, there was a lot more, I, I put a lot more stakes on everything where it's like, oh, it has to be perfect the first time it comes out. If, if it's not exactly the way that I want it to be, if it's not exactly the way I intended it to be, I'm going to be disappointed in it. Um, but I would say that it is a waste of energy to be disappointed in a first draft. And uh, you can't even be disappointed in something that's so subjective. I think writing is the most subjective art out there, maybe second only to music. Um, and I think it, we are very hard on ourselves about making something perfect, but there's, there's no definition of that that exists for everything at once. Um, so I would say, put it on the page, let it sit, put it in front of somebody else and see where it goes. And do you think you would have listened? Because I am getting a very similar answer from other authors, but my, I've, I've expanded the question into... How did you manage to do it? Because we tell ourselves not to be perfect and we tell ourselves to let the first draft sit, but it can be very difficult to actually do. Did you find it easy for you? Is your kind of personality suited to that? Or did you just have to like tear it out of your hands and, and keep launching forward? I had to completely change my own definition of, of perfect. Um, I think it used to be perfect was this thing that would please everybody and would check all of everybody's boxes and everyone's going to love it and I'm going to be celebrated to the ends of the earth, yada, yada, yada. But now um, creative perfection is just 
did I make it? And if I made it, if I put it on the page, it's perfect. And it can always be different, but every iteration of something, as long as it gets made, as long as it gets put on the page, it's perfect because I made it. And from there, you can fix it, you can adjust it, you can revise it, you can change it. But every iteration of something, depending on the angle at which you let yourself look at it, everything can be perfect to somebody at some point. So it's it's truly just letting perfect be something so much bigger than what we think it is. Because um, it's impossible to tell yourself, stop being a perfectionist, stop expecting good things. Because obviously you want a, heart, a high bar. Um, but yeah, just changing the definition and letting it be flawed because everything is flawed. And um, if we expect ourselves to be the exception to the rule, we're never going to get anything done. Okay, I think our writers can run with that very well. Just redefine perfect. Thank you again so much, Isa, and everyone. This book comes out in October, and I think it's going to be a really exciting read. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me.